This is the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome to the channel. This first interview that you're about to watch is with a man named Tim Hausler. Tim is one of those people that as soon as you meet him, he can't hide his intellect. He's a very smart guy, and the words he chooses and the way that he listens to you, you're immediately drawn into just how quick you know that he is. But he's got this lighthearted personality that he's always looking for the quick joke or to be able to kind of smile and talk out of the side of his mouth as he says some clever quip. I met Tim because I'd written an article and published it in the local paper, and as soon as he saw it, he wrote me and asked if I would meet him for coffee because he thought I was an interesting character that had just moved to town. Anytime you meet somebody like that, you know that they've got something. They're curious or they've, they've got an interest in things that you can learn from. So I sat down with Tim and we immediately became friends. And shortly after we became friends, I started hearing some of the hijinks and things that he had done in his younger days when he first started being out in the financial world. And you'll hear in this interview some of the things that he did and how I ended up using them to my own benefit. This is a fun interview. I hope you enjoy it. And as always, if you have any comments or ways that I can get better, please leave the comments below and, uh, and definitely leave a like or subs and uh, click that subscribe button so we can keep having these conversations. If, I, if they were going to say that there was one person that my wife was always a, a little bit suspicious of as I walked out the door once a month, you know, when we get together for coffee, I think the number one person that she was a little bit uh, like, I'm not so sure if that's a great idea or not, would actually be you, Tim Hausler. Huh. And that? Um, because I think it was maybe the second or third time we ever met, I came back and was like, Annie, I've got an idea. And two days later, I was in the national news, uh, having written about how Warren Buffett was wrong about Bitcoin. <laughs> and it radically changed my world. And probably the most fundamental change that happened was that her family now thought that she was married to a crazy Radical. person. <laughs> Radical and anarchist. So that is, that's you. That is probably the best introduction I could give uh, of you is that you are the guy that uh, makes my wife a little nervous. <laughs> and uh, I was wondering maybe if we could start off by telling your Warren Buffett story and what story you told me that got me to come back and try something a little different. Yeah, no, I'm happy to. I had some experience with Warren Buffett back uh, earlier in my career when I worked for um, a broker-dealer. And one of the responsibilities I had was to uh, help to create products that would be appealing to our customers. And so we were at the time working with a lot of unit investment trusts, which is like a mutual fund, except it's not married, uh, managed, sorry. It's just a basket of securities you buy and hold. And the basket of securities I suggested that we buy was one share of Berkshire Hathaways, which at the time was, you know, $17,000 a share, one share of Gillette, one share of um, Shearson Lehman, you know, just everything that Warren Buffett owned and everybody knew he owned. But when you gathered one share of each of those, the trust was 97 or 98% Berkshire Hathaways. But because it was a unit investment trust, you could actually buy just $5,000 worth. Well, $5,000 worth of Berkshire Hathaways was just not something that anybody could buy because one share of it traded for $17,000. 
So we were trying to democratize investing in Berkshire Hathaway, and um, it was spectacularly successful. <laughs> the, uh, the, the marketplace really accepted this idea, and we sold you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of that security, and um, then sort of faced the wrath of Warren Buffett. He did not like <laughs> what we had done. You know, one of his theories, and it is a true theory, is that you, you can um, have more success as an investor if you limit transactions costs. And one of his principal uh, criticisms of Wall Street is that transactions costs play a big part in the acquisition of a securities portfolio. So he's always sort of felt like Wall Street made too much money. And, and so he has this high stock price because when you invest in 100 shares of Berkshire Hathaway's at the time, you know, you're putting away $170,000. And it's costing you the same as that if you bought 100 shares of a stock that was substantially lower in price. So you were able to pay a lot less to put a lot more money to work. Of course, the problem is our clients who don't have millions and millions of dollars as a rule couldn't put money to work at Berkshire Hathaway's. So he was upset that we had done that. And in his annual report that year, he spent a page um, railing against the, you know, the villains on Wall Street. And, um, you know, it hurt my feelings because I, <laughs> I thought I was doing good, right? I, you know, getting people an opportunity to invest in Berkshire Hathaways, I thought was a noble thing. And frankly, the market thought so too because we were so successful. Um, the next thing that happened is that Warren Buffett said, I'll get even with you nasty guys on Wall Street. And he created B shares. So now if you want to buy a, a B share of Berkshire Hathaways, that's only, I, I don't even know today, $1,300, $1,700 a share, something like that. So it's still very difficult for a person with an average size portfolio that seeks diversification to buy 100 shares of Berkshire Hathaways and buying fractional shares you know, nobody likes to see 18 shares in their portfolio. Frankly, it doesn't matter, but people just don't like that. So anyway, um, he, he ruined our opportunity to, you know, do that again and make uh, even more money. Uh, but uh, I felt like I had an impact because he ended up creating the B shares. He, by himself, democratized investment in Berkshire Hathaways and gave an awful lot more people the opportunity to benefit from his investing wisdom and guidance and so anyway i i well that, that's so for me hearing that story for the first time i remember we had talked about you know you had essentially said to me warren buffett is very very smart um but he is not a god and he is really a marketing genius and so he is going to go out and explain to the world how the economy works in a way that may be slanted a little bit more towards his perspective. And, you know, that was actually the first time I'd ever encountered that idea before. Yeah, he, um, it's interesting. You know, he's, he's very much opposed to pipelines to move fuel, um, but he loves tank cars moving fuel. He just happens to own a tank car manufacturing company and one of the nation's largest railroads. So I, I don't think that he has no bias. I think that generally he, is an, an honorable man with tremendous integrity. 
But it is interesting that, you know, even, you know, the Oracle of Omaha has uh, an opportunity to take advantage of his place and position and the way people have honored, you know, the work that he's done. I think I told you in that same conversation that it it's interesting to me that at the turn of the 20th century, it was really all about generating tremendous wealth. It didn't matter whose back you climbed over or, you know, whether people exploded in the DuPont era or, you know, Rockefeller and Carnegie. They, they were interested in making wealth. It's the, it's the next hundred years later that people interested in making wealth, but also being liked, you know, and being admired. So um, it, it's, I just think it's strange that we, you know, people still have sort of the same animal ambitions and instincts, except now they've got public relations firms to help them. And you really think that's different? You think, you think human nature has changed or you think that? I think that it, it's, we're better able now with media and, and certainly with the advent of the internet we're better, better able to shame people into doing, you know, good things. So Warren Buffett still wants to get as rich as anybody and maybe richer than anybody. But at the same time, he wants to be liked and respected. And that was, that's a change from, I think, the Vanderbilts and the people who, you know, just had such extraordinary wealth and frankly paid no taxes, you know, at all. Um, so... You know, the, the Warren Buffett, I'm not taxed enough scenario always kind of rubbed me the wrong way because um, Warren Buffett structures his entire investment approach around minimizing taxes. And it, it, he intentionally avoids taxable income so that he doesn't have to pay taxes. And then he turns around and says, oh, my tax rate's lower than my secretary. Well, okay. You know, that's because of the way you do things. He could absolutely pay himself a $25 million salary to work for Berkshire Hathaways, and then he would pay, you know, the highest tax rate there is. Well, so this is so this is what I I was listening to these ideas, and I come home, and I decide, um, <laughs> you know, I'm looking up Warren Buffett, and it happened that at the same time that I was just beginning to really understand Bitcoin and cryptographic currency, that he came out and said, Bitcoin is a mirage. And um, Reddit, and you and I may disagree on this, but Reddit um, is now all a flutter, and the people on the Bitcoin um, subreddit are saying like, "Oh, isn't this terrible?" You know, and and so I just popped in there and wrote a single comment, like, you know, he he has a perspective, and he's playing into a a very good marketing role of what he's doing here. Right. Don't worry about it; it doesn't really matter. Well, within ten minutes. A reporter that had been from uh, CNBC who had been scouring oh, no. all of the Reddit <laughs> said, would you be interested in writing an article? And I was like, here's my Tim Hausler moment. All and right. so I did. So that that's uh, then that shot me off into the world. And that article has followed me around and popped up in the weirdest of places. I one time uh, was actually interviewing for a job and they red flagged my application because they said the he's HR radical. said he's a radical and, uh, you know, he's probably uh, dealing drugs or something or, or in the mob if he's into Bitcoin. So, well, I'm sorry that I might have poisoned <laughs> you against Warren Buffett. Uh, I, 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 
I hesitate to suggest that he might have been right about Bitcoin. I think it might have been a little bit of a mirage, but you know, obviously we're only uh, hours into uh, a lifetime of, of cryptocurrency. So it, I, I think the jury's still out on what ultimately will happen. You, you mentioned your wife. Um, it's so funny because I've gone back home and said to my wife, I met this really great young man, Vance Crow. It's so much fun talking to him. And I realize now why it's so much fun talking to you. You just give me a topic and I pull my soapbox out and I stand on it and I lecture <laughs> for 45 minutes and then we empty our coffees and we go. So I enjoy the opportunity to <laughs> talk so, to you as well. You know, it's an interesting uh Thing, how we met and actually I think that one of the things that you did actually has been another thing that changed me is do you remember how we met I do I, I was very impressed with an article you wrote about st. Louis and your views on st. Louis sort of moving here I think your wife was uh, relocated here and um, and you wrote an article that really struck me about how st. Louis is different than what you would expect and, and you really enjoyed it here. And so I reached out to you and said, man, I loved reading your article. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? And that's my memory of how we Yeah, and got I had connected. spent a year. Uh, I, had, I had moved here. Um, I had been working at the World Bank. My wife right. had been working at um, an aerospace engineering firm and decided she wanted to become a physical therapist. So we moved here and I said, I'm just going to start a business. And I really had no idea what that I meant. appreciate your courage. And uh, I, naivety is all what that was. <laughs> and um, and I didn't know anyone here. I'm not a single person. So I had spent a year um, meeting somebody, having coffee with them, and then having them introduce me to other people. And it was, it was a fantastic way to be introduced to the city. Sure. But there is some level of asking other people for coffee that's tiring. And I wrote that article and... From like the heavens came this email just from this random person. Well, it, again, the pen is mightier than the sword. I uh, I wish I had your, I don't know what it is, courage, initiative, something to actually take some of these ideas and write them down and shove them out there and see what happens. I, I talk about them a lot with my wife and my family and my brothers, but I've never really captured any of my thoughts. I mean, I think a lot of it's hilarious because if anybody, if you ever had to listen to me for the next 45 minutes after we get done with the conversation, it would be like you being incredibly frustrated that the game of telephone clearly didn't work. <laughs> no, because I I'll be it. like, but the idea was really well thought out <laughs> yeah. when Tim was describing it. So you're retired now. Semi-retired. I'm Semi still consulting. I'm a fractional CFO, which I really enjoy. For startups, I really like the energy around emerging companies and developing activities. So I spend about half my week doing that. So um, we can go in a bunch of different directions on that. Uh, the, the funny thing I think about startups is most of the people that are investing in technology appear to be investing in what I think of as a mirage. I was just at a dinner the other night. And somebody was telling me how they were running a marketing company that sold uh, tech firms that did artificial intelligence, um, natural language processing, machine learning. And I said, can you tell me what the difference is between any of the three things that you said? Yeah. And this is a guy who says he's the CEO of the marketing company. Right. And, and in front of his wife, I didn't mean to embarrass him. Right, I was right. just asking a genuine right, question. Right. No, right. And he had no idea. idea. Right. Is the whole market this way? Um, you know, uh, there's an awful lot of trying to position your company in uh, areas that are particularly compelling from an investment standpoint. Artificial intelligence, boy, if you can slap that onto the description of what you're doing, that's a big deal. Machine learning, you know, so 
you know, it's all about elevator pitches and having the right terms. And you're really just trying to, you know, in the 10 seconds you have, you're trying to get enough attention from somebody that they say, well, let's, let's sit down and have a conversation. But if you run into one person that knows that, they, they'll blow you up. Are they, they're, well, they're it, it's, I, would, I would advise the person you were talking to to go back and, <laughs> and make sure he understands what he's telling people they do so that he can explain it. But um, yeah, it, it, it's just exciting. I mean, it's an exciting time right now. Um, you know, the animal spirits are, are as high as I've ever seen. And um, so I, I think it's, uh, it's fun to be involved in something like this. Uh, you know, there's all ages, a lot of diversity associated with what's going on with new business. Is the startup world increasing? So I heard the other, not long ago. It is ago, in St. Louis, I the, think. Well, so is that because private equity is searching, you know, like there's money out there. They're saying, I, I have so much money in the stock market. I want to do something else. Like when you say the animal spirit is coming up, you know, you're not a metaphorical guy. You're, you're a logical <laughs> guy. So why is that? Uh, I, I think it has something to do with private equity. But private equity really needs an established business. Private equity isn't the way I define it. It's not investing, you know, like venture capital does. Um, so there are all these different stages of a company life cycle. And, you know, clearly the startup is more on the emerging side. Um, private equity is really looking for um, established business, cash flow, certainty, or, or at least more certainty than a startup. And the, the, the interesting thing is if you were to stack the ways uh, institutions can invest, like a pension fund that's trying to generate returns, you know, you've got treasury securities. You can take a big hunk of money and put it into treasury securities and you're going to make, you know, the near riskless rate of return, which right now is somewhere between two and three and a half, depending upon where you invest on the government curve. And then there's corporate bonds on top of that and other fixed income securities and then you kind of move into equity. The, the larger multinational companies are going to return more than the debt securities would. At least that's over time they're expected to because you're, you're taking on more risk. And then as you get into um, private equity, you're taking on more risk than, than you would if you were buying a diversified portfolio of publicly traded stocks. And then venture capital is probably near the tap, top of the stack. So if you look at as a portfolio manager for a pension fund, you're really going to try and slice off a lot of that stack so that, you know, there's all kinds of analytics and strategies around doing this. But in general, you're just trying to create a diversified portfolio of asset classes as well as investments. So um, venture capital is really where all the investment activity is in, in the emerging company side. At least that's my perspective. And, you know, St. Louis is doing a, a really admirable job of fueling um, an ecosystem for, you know, generating um, new business. And it's funny, you know, people think of Boston, they think of Palo Alto, maybe Austin, Texas. A lot of those activities were driven by the major universities. So you got MIT and Harvard, you got Stanford, you got Te University of Texas, you know, taking research and kind of spinning it out into business activity. Um, WashU is not necessarily the leader of the um, ecosystem development in St. Louis, even though 
they, they could play it. They, they do play and could play even more important a role. But um, it, it's really developed uh, more grassroots, which uh, I, I think is kind of compelling. So we're a little behind some other major areas in the country, but I, I think we're accelerating pretty aggressively in terms of exciting things that are happening here. Hopefully it'll draw young people and, uh, you know, more diverse population. And, you know, hopefully we'll develop the large customer, uh, sorry, large corporate base that used to be a real part of St. Louis. You know, when I first moved here 35 years ago, there were lots of Fortune 500 companies. And now, you know, that number's really dwindled. Uh, is that just because of the consolidation in markets? There's just not that many large companies anymore? I think so. Uh, well, no, there, there are still 500 Fortune 500 companies. They um, they tend to move to, you know, larger metropolitan areas where they can attract workforce and resources and support, that sort of thing. And, you know, St. Louis is a great community, a large uh, metropolitan area, but it's not as dynamic as some of the larger metropolitan areas that, you know, that really drive, um, you know, student um, activity after college. You know, people from here want to go to Chicago. People want to go to Dallas. People want to go to Atlanta. Um, it, it's going to take a while before people say, oh, no, I, you know, my ambition is to really move to St. Louis and get involved in that. You know, one ecosystem. of the, the interesting th- So I spend a huge amount of my time traveling around the country and I get out on the coasts and Boston and D.C. And, and all over California. And I think there's something uh, deeply undervalued about living in the middle. And that is that on the coasts, the established um, way of thinking is much harder to question. Yeah. And I think that people have this like uh, image that by being out on the coast that they, you know, they're, they're, they have the latest ideas and the biggest and the freshest ideas. But I get there. And I find like you are, I find many times, and I'm talking with people at the highest echelons of science and technology, they're repeating the same things. Whereas I have many, many people in St. Louis that that having a heterodox idea does not create, doesn't make you an outcast here. It's interesting. People seem to feel very proud of the fact that they live in San Francisco or New York or Chicago, but it's not a... It's not an exclusive club. Any, anybody can move there, you know, so it, um, I guess it's just, you know, for me, it's a quality of life thing. Um, I've been to New York quite a lot in my career and it's just a hard place to live. And I guess you prove something to yourself when you can live there in a, an apartment that's 400 square feet. And, but it, I, I just, I'm not sure that the quality of life is great. Years and years ago, there was a, an employer in St. Louis, Mark Twain Bank, and, and they got very excited about hiring Harvard MBAs, and they really wanted to put a lot of, you know, what they thought high quality, and they probably were high quality uh, graduates into uh, the banking system in St. Louis, into their bank. And the, the fellow who was the chairman, his name was Adam Aronson, and his whole spiel was, you know, in New York, you can you can pick amongst ten Greek restaurants and thirty Italian restaurants and sixty Asian restaurants. In St. Louis, we got you know two good Asian restaurants and one good Greek restaurant. So it was all about there's still the diversity here. There just isn't as many choices in in and amongst the diversity. So 
Uh, I think that's true. I think St. Louis has an awful lot to offer. I'm, um, I'm excited about being here. I hope my other child comes back. I have one that's already back. So, the, uh, so Speaking of heterodox ideas, that's kind of your stock and trade. <laughs> so what would you say right now are the ideas that you've been playing with? So it, it's interesting, Vance. What, what I'm recognizing... And, you know, we're, it's no secret, we're in an environment in our country where there's uh, a lot of opposite views. Um, I'm concerned that the parties are having too much influence on what people in the parties are able to do and say in, in an effort to develop solutions that are good for the people of the United States. So in, in my thinking, I'm, I'm all about, well, Let's forget for a moment that we're a D or an R. What would work? You know, what is a solution that would actually work? And um, so, so I, I'm particularly interested in um, minimum wage. Oh, here we go. Okay. So um, it, it's interesting to me because I do believe that everybody in our country should have an opportunity to earn a living wage. And, and so there's a part of me that says, yeah, yeah, it's fair. I mean, it's fair that you should have a minimum wage. And then the other part of me that studied economics and has been, you know, in a capital position for all my career says, yeah, but you can't force that. I mean, if somebody doesn't have skills, if somebody doesn't have, um, you know, the reliability or you know, whatever you're looking for in a job, if, if, if the job that you're looking to fill isn't worth X dollar, it seems odd to say to them, well, that's okay. If you want to hire somebody, you have to hire them at that higher wage. That's just the way it's going to be. And I think what happens is we end up going into our camps, right? So we've got one camp that says, oh, you know, you're greedy. And the other camp that says, oh, you're stupid. And ultimately, I think there is a way to make this work. And I think it's, it's a way to make it work with uh, government playing the role that maybe government could play. And that is, I've also thought it was really odd that uh, uh, a, a woman with two children and um, you know her minimum wage is the same as a, a 21-year-old single person. And so you've got you know two, uh, two children and you're you know, a, a woman trying to raise your family by yourself in Chicago, and you've got a 21-year-old that lives in Des Moines. Well, I don't know that the minimum wage for each of those people should be the same. I, you know, they, they have much different sorts of requirements, and, and their circumstances are different, and the cost of living is higher or lower. So I think it would be really interesting for the federal government to do, uh, I don't know, a study or come out with some recommendations to say, Here's a category of minimum wages. And, and, and so somebody who's, you know, a, a sole provider for a, a, a family of four, his minimum wage should be set here. And the, the other person that's uh, single and footloose and fancy free and young, maybe their minimum wage should be set here. And whatever skills they have, they go out and they try and find the best job they can. And the economy values those sets of skills that they have and prices them for the job that they want to do and the skills that they have. So if the sole provider, family of four, the best he can do is make uh, you know, $13 an hour and his minimum wage set by the government is $22 an hour, 
He can go and petition the government through the tax system to say, I'm making 13. You say I should make 22. The federal government should provide me the difference. So the employer gets to employ somebody who's great. The, the, the individual gets a job and an opportunity to improve their skills with time, obviously, and learning. And the rest of us support the effort of this sole provider who's making a, you know, a, a concerted effort to try and care for his family and improve himself. So the federal government would make up the difference between what the job pays him and what his level of minimum wage should be. What's going to happen, I believe, is that over time, that person's going to improve their skills. They're going to go to work every day. They're going to understand you know, what to do in order to get on a career path and develop more skills and become maybe uh, a, a manager of something. And then they're going to put themselves through their own minimum wage scale, but it's going to take them some time to do it. They can't do it in a weekend. I mean, you know, you can't get a job and then say, okay, I have a job now. I'm worth more. Um, it, it's really more about developing skills, understanding what work and how work works and, and finding that better job, even if you have to move. I mean, even if it's, it's a mobility thing, um, the, the more skills somebody develops over that period of time, the more hireable they are, the more money they're going to make. And at some point, as they move up, they're going to move through that level of minimum wage and all of a sudden, they go from being somebody who's relying on the federal government for part of their family sustenance to somebody who's contributing to everybody else who's still not able to, you know, meet their own minimum requirements. So anyway, I, I think the, the solution is there. And there's a really bright people. I happen to know a, a, a congressman that I think very highly of. He's not able to come up with solutions like this. But I mean, I, so before we consider it like a foregone solution, like I can yeah, see, like I can it's see, really good idea. I can see some <laughs> challenge. Like first of all, um, you know, you were talking about setting somebody's wages for the work that they make based on decisions that they've made, so children that they've had, or you know how quickly they got into the workforce. You you then think that the the taxpayers of the United States should collectively be responsible for making sure that those people as individuals. Well, don't we do that now? I mean, you know, somebody decides to have seven children and, and aid dependent families is going to pay them more than if they have three. Um, I think right now we already have that dilemma. I think this would be uh, a way forward that, that hopefully over time would move us sort of ahead as, as a society where we are kind and gentle, if that's you know what you want to say, and we are trying to create safety nets that are workable safety nets, not safety nets that you know mire people in poverty their entire lives. Um, you know, uh, I remember a lot of conversation about how it takes a village, you know, to raise a family. It doesn't. It takes generations to raise a family. My dad's dad didn't go to college. When, you know, he, his lifetime earnings potential was what it was because he had the skills that he had. And he did very well. He, he raised two kids. He sent both of them to college. But it was my dad's generation that actually had more opportunity than his dad. And my dad's generation 
put his kids through better schools than he went to because he had the benefit of inherited a little bit of inherited savings and and wealth beyond money you know uh, intellect and and help and support from his parents to help his kids and now my kids are doing much better than I ever did I think it takes generations I think it's probably inappropriate to think that you know, in one generation, we're going to take a, a, a family that's, uh, you know, starting up and saying, you know, they ought to be equal to the, to the medians in the United States in, in one generation. It's very hard. So when you're thinking about this as an employer, right, what, what's the incentive to have an employer not say, well, everybody's worth 13 because the delta now between what I'm going to pay you and the government that's going to be this can be picked up by somebody else well because as a person i'm still trying to maximize my earnings my hope ultimately is to get through you know right it's it's not enough for me to make 23 dollars an hour for my whole life i've got ass ambitions that are greater than that so if i'm on a path to improve my skills and develop my skills and put myself in a position where i can earn more I'm not going to accept $13 if I'm worth more than $13. I'm going to, I'm going to say, no, I'm, I'm worth more than $13. And the employer that says, well, but, you know, between you and I, government's going to pick up the difference. Do I want to work for that person? No, I don't want to work for that person. I'll go find another job. And I know it's hard to find jobs. And I know people would say, oh, it's very difficult. It's easier to find a job when the economy is robust and you're improving your skills. So if the federal government did their job and managed to a robust economy that needs constantly needs workers, and I do my job of improving my skills, I think we've got a combination of things that could work pretty well. So, you, you know, you, you slipped in that thing, the federal government managing the economy. Is that the federal government's role? You, when you look at the federal government, you say, I want those guys managing the economy. Whether I think it's their role or not, they think it's their role, right? So um, the, the federal government does influence the economy to, to a great degree. And it's very interesting. You know, you're bringing up one, one of my other uh, pet peeves. Legislators don't like taking responsibility for the legislation that they can create through compromise because their parties and the members of their party, the voting members of their party, sort of hold it against them if they didn't get enough of whatever it was that they were searching for. And a great example of this is that up until 1977, fiscal policy and the economy was really the responsibility of the legislature and the administrative branch. They're supposed to work together to establish budgets and policy for tax collection and other fiscal policies. But Congress got sort of bent out of shape about having to do all that work. So they said, hey, Federal Reserve, we're going to make you responsible now. You have a dual mandate. Not only is your mandate to manage the money supply, which from the very beginning in 1913, that's what you were supposed to do. From 1977 on, you're also supposed to manage to full employment and inflation. Well, they gave them the mandate, but they didn't give them the tools to do that. The tools are still resting with the administrative branch and Congress. They're the ones that set tax policy. They're the ones that set spending policy. The Federal Reserve can't do anything to do that except 
influence the animal spirits we were talking about earlier. So, you know, you think things are a little too aggressive and people are making too much money. You come out and you say, well, if your exuberance is extraordinary and we ought to not do that. Or you say, oh, we're going to lower rates down to zero and then we're going to buy every freaking dollar that the government needs to issue. And, and, and so you create an environment through the Fed that is influencing the economy in the best way that they know how or can invent for certain circumstances. And, and you say, you, you know, hey, the responsibility for, for doing this now is yours. It's no longer ours. So I did some research recently, and I don't even know what to think of this, but I was curious. And um, I went back at, in, in, at the Fed's own data, and I looked at where the Fed set the Federal Reserve rate, which is their prerogative and, and only theirs. Nobody else can set that. And so, they so say a little bit about that. When, when you say they set the rate... Talk a little bit more about what that means. Well, they, they set the, um, essentially it becomes the overnight interest rate because they set, this is what we're going to provide um, to the members of the Federal Reserve System to um, influence money supply. If they set low rates, you would expect the banks to lend it out because they can get a better return somewhere else. If they set high rates, you would expect the banks to, you know, not. So the money supply expands and contracts based on, you know, the open market committee and whether they're buying bonds or not buying bonds, whether they're setting rates higher or lower. So what the only thing they can absolutely control is that reserve rate. So if they set that reserve rate at 25 basis points, everything else sort of fixes off of that. If they set it at 125 basis points, a point and a quarter, everything fixes off of that. So when you say basis points, you're saying put the decimal in front of, you know, after right, right. the, the uh, 1.25% is 125 basis exactly. points. Right. Okay. So ultimately, nobody except the 12 smartest men in the room and women, sorry about that, 12 smartest people in the room say, we're going to decide where to set this rate. And they recorded all the way back to when Dwight Eisenhower was president on a monthly basis where they set that rate. And I was just curious, you know, if you go back to 1950, that's, you know, right now, 70, almost 70 years, you have that many data points, 12 times 70, that's how many times they set the interest rate. And again, they set it based on their best judgment of where the rate should be set. If you were to ask whether there's a republic or or a Democratic president in the Oval Office, does it matter in terms of their rate setting? I would hope your answer would be, well, no, of course it doesn't matter. They're, you know, they're looking, at, to, right? yeah, yeah. they're looking at the economy and they're saying this is what we should do. When you go back and you take a simple average all the way back to when they first started recording the data for what the Federal Reserve rate is, when Republican presidents are in office, the Federal Reserve sets the, the overnight rate 40% higher than when Democrats are in office. Now, I don't know why, and it's not like it's my judgment. I just added all the numbers up and divided by the number of months that one or versus the other was in office. If you looked since 1977, when the Federal Reserve got the dual mandate from Congress, it's actually 50% higher. So an average so rate... So what ends up being the consequence of that then? Well, I don't know, right? The consequence of having a higher reserve rate 
is, is a constrained economy. The consequences of having a lower reserve rate is an expanding economy. You know, you're wanting people to, to do more. And it's all relative, right? So, I mean, it, uh, a low rate can be 4% in an environment where the rate before was 5%. Lowering the rate is going to cause people to theoretically be more aggressive and lend more. So, the only way the Federal Reserve can influence, one of the only ways the Federal Reserve can influence the economy lately is by coming out and, and you know, People wait, wait on this like they waited on the orange juice crop report, you know, during trading places. It's like, what's the Fed going to say? What's the Fed going to say? And the Fed says, we're not going to raise rates. And people just start going crazy because it's not so much that the rate matters. What's the difference between one and a quarter and one and a half? You know, what's the difference? The difference is what is the Fed's judgment for what they should do to either help the economy to be more robust or slow the economy down. That's what everybody's waiting for because that has an impact on earnings and earnings have an impact on valuations and valuations have an impact on wealth and wealth has an impact on spending. So all these things sort of domino, the first domino that goes is what's the Fed going to do next quarter? What's the Fed going to do next year? Because it's what do they think? It, it's the barometer that's the... How do they think how healthy things are or not healthy? Or, right. Okay. Are we going to go into recession? Well, if the Fed thinks we're going to go into recession, they aren't going to be raising interest rates because that's just going to exacerbate an, an, an already anticipated problem. If, if the Fed thinks that inflation is starting to pick up, they may raise interest rates and kind of slow things down a little bit because in their judgment, you know, too much money is out there chasing too few goods and we've got to sort of get back in alignment. So it used to be that their responsibility was to manage the money supply and it was Congress and the administration's responsibility to manage tax policy and spending and, you know, those things that impact fiscal policy versus monetary policy. But it's, it's, uh, it's uncomfortable taking responsibility for that stuff. And, and our party says, oh, well, we can't be in favor of lowering taxes or we can't be in favor of raising taxes. No matter what is necessary for the economy at that point, if you're a Republican and you say, no, I, I think we really should raise taxes for this, this, and this reason, you know, Grover Norquist comes out and says, you're no longer, you know, we're not going to support you anymore. And, and so it happens both ways. And you can't end up with these solutions that would be good to end up with because people say, well... You know, between you and me, Vance, I really do think that it's fair to have a minimum wage, you know, a, a, a safety net for people because we are a rich enough country. We can afford to help everybody. But boy, if I come out and say that, I'm going to get my hand slapped. I'm going to get my head cut off. So it, it creates some anxiety. And, and so they speak openly in private. But in public, it's all about we're on this side, I'm on this side. And but you, you're not necessarily saying that that's different than in the past, right? I mean, partisan politics. You know, So I'll tell you. I, I think read, it is a little different. When I was your age, it wasn't quite this way. So I, I, I read a book uh, not that long ago. I think it's probably one of the most compelling books I've read in years. And it was written in 2012. And the book is called Trust Me, I'm Lying by Ryan Holiday. And it's all about how the media infrastructure of the internet has um, changed um, the, the nature of news. I right? agree with so, that. So it gives you, by, by 
Um, and the way that he starts off this book, um, or actually when he tells the history of the news, is um, kind of shocking. Because what he says is, you know, the, the problem that we're having right now is actually the very same problem when we first got newspapers. Because right. the first people yeah. that could afford newspapers were the political press, which right. is why you had, uh, you know, a two-party newspaper system in any given town right. and, the, and the only thing the local news was about was what's coming up in your election and what's going on and why those guys are the enemy yep. and, and so you had that. that and it wasn't until you get to the newsboys who are then selling papers based on hyperbole because it's like i want you to buy this paper right now so right. i'm going to tell Headline. you the most extreme yep. things and then you move into when telephones came out now you could get people to buy subscriptions so then you start selling a brand of news so right. now you're selling you know, our news says the, the, you know, all the news that's fit to print. And now instead of trying to get the polls, you're getting the middle of the distribution because there's way more people there sure. that get both a little bit of left, a little bit of right, a little bit yeah. of Republican, a little bit of Democrat. But once you decentralize that and you're now back to the attention phase, you go straight back to hyperbole and back to that polarization. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I do think media and social media... Uh, have an awful lot of influence as well, uh, but it, it it all comes back to that party affiliation, right? I mean, you you've got to fit into that brand, and if you don't fit into that brand, you, you're not going to get supported. And the you know the news cycles, twenty four hour news cycles, are constantly looking for things that they can do to support the brand or or support the person who is. Uh, you know, consistent with the brand. And I think there's a lot to that book. I'll have to go out and get it do, and read do it. You, do you watch uh, uh, television news? Generally not. I don't. Um, I, I sort of know what's going to be on there based on the headlines I read, you know, on the internet. Do your friends? Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, we. I don't talk with my friends a lot about Political stuff. My wife said, "If I did, you know, they wouldn't be your friends they wouldn't anymore. Be, <laughs> wouldn't be our friends anymore." So uh, I, I try to, you know, keep the topics sort of non-political, and um, but it, it definitely has an influence. There is some groupthink associated with both, you know, poles sides of the spectrum. I mean, I think that one of the biggest issues is that it it narrows the window on uh, on which conversations people are having so when i was in college fascinating professor that said you know we have done many 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 studies that have shown that the news doesn't tell you what to think it tells you what to think about, about. yeah and and Smart. that and that overton window that that says these are the acceptable topics that we're going to be discussing today the mainstream news doesn't if you filter it out so there's a hundred different subjects going on that means that people could flip over to somebody that has a deeper expert than you or a more compelling story. So right. they keep it there. And then you push the politicians into this very narrow band I think that's of right. which subjects they can talk right. about at all. I, you know, I don't think I actually have a friend that uh, right now is paying for television. I don't, oh, I don't, I don't yeah, think that's I own a, difference a single between person. Your generation and mine. My kids don't have cable television. It uh, would seem it would seem it would seem hilarious. Like I see the way that I remember when old people when they first got uh, like DVRs and satellite and they would try and press on the buttons and didn't know how. I'm that same way now. If, yeah. you, if you handed me that giant <laughs> remote, I'd be like, I don't, I don't. Well, know. you should call me. I'm not <laughs> operated. But but this transition, 
I don't think has hit. I'm not sure where on the technology adoption curve that's hit. You know, it's so funny. My wife comes home and when we're having dinner or I'm preparing dinner, she'll watch, you know, Lester Holt on the NBC Nightly News. When I go to visit my daughter and grandson, she's on her phone going through social media or, or Facebook. I mean, whatever she's looking at, it's, it's a screen, you know, it's like right there. Um, that's where she gets her news. That's where she gets her information. Um, and, you know, she shares some of that with us. But for the most part, Celia's saying, yeah, I, you know, I saw that on Lester Holt. You know, he had that same story. But it's interesting, it, you know, if, if you were to, if you were to say, so, so in 2008, too big to fail was something everybody heard of. Everybody understood too big to fail and what it meant and that banks were threatening the economy because they were just too big, too big, too big. And the Federal Reserve, who's responsible for managing the banking system in the United States, um, I, I went to a lecture and, and uh, Jim Bullard at the St. Louis Fed you know, I had an opportunity to ask him a question. And I said, what are the smartest people in the room thinking about too big to fail? What, what is the solution there? And he says, oh, that's, that's a tough one. We really don't know what to do. And I said, I know what to do. If, <laughs> did you actually say I that? did. I said, I know what to do. <laughs> if you limited FDIC insurance... For any and every bank in the United States to $500 billion, I don't think there would be a bank bigger than $500 billion. Oh, you mean the total of all of their deposits? That yeah. Because right now, the FDIC limits are like $200,000 per account? $250,000 per account, but you can open up four accounts, right? right. There's, there's your account, there's your IRA account, there's your wife's account, there's your 529 account. And, and so, the, you know, the theory is that it's about helping the consumer. But in truth, you know, I, I don't know exactly how big J.P. Morgan Chase is, two point something billion trillion dollars. And a large portion of that two point something trillion dollars is guaranteed by the federal government. So if you put money there, you know, you're, you're not worried about them failing and, you know, not having money to pay you back because if they do something lousy with, with the money, making bad loans and, and buying bad securities and they lose the money, well, you just dip into the FDIC, and which is the you know, taxpayer, and you get your money back up to those limits. And, and so my thinking is eliminate the limits. Don't, don't limit it to a $250,000. Because you could have one $500 billion deposit, deposit or you could have you know, 50 much smaller right. levels. Okay. And, okay. and so my theory is that I think if you had a $500 billion limit, in order to get bigger than $500 billion, J.P. Morgan Chase is going to have to convince investors or depositors. Oh, that they take on that risk. That it's okay. Don't worry. We'll never fail. We'll never do anything bad. We'll never do anything wrong. There wouldn't be a bank bigger than $500 billion because you wouldn't take that risk. You would say, no, no I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put, you know, to use your analogy, my first $500 billion with you, and then I'm going to take the next $500 billion, I'm going to put that at Wells Fargo, or I'm going to put that at BB&T. So you end up in a situation where the market, instead of the government, would determine how big banks could be. And how did he react to that? <laughs> he didn't say a thing to me, <laughs> because I think... He understands that would be a very simple solution, 
but it wouldn't it wouldn't go down well with Jamie Diamond and the other guys that you know that are using that implicit moral obligation of the federal government to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. How hard would it be for you and I to start a business doing anything and say to investors, you give us a million dollars, we're going to go out and try and do something great. If we do something great, we're going to give you a share of that in a return. If we lose it, Uncle Sam's got our backs. Yeah, but that's not entirely how banks work. I it's mean, not. Like, I mean, it's if, not. If, they, if they're doing bad loans, if they're... They get shut down. Well, they get shut down or, I mean, you know, their investors start losing their money. Nobody gets... Well, the investors lose the money first, right? Right. But the depositors don't lose the money. That's true. And that's who's funding their loan portfolio is the depositors. The investors only fund, you know, 7 to 11% of the asset class, you know, the entire balance sheet. The rest of it's deposits and notes that they can issue or debt that they can issue. But that's the problem in 2008 was you had a lot of these firms where they let their equity percentages drop lower and lower and lower. So if their, you know, huge asset base lost 6% of its value, they wiped out all their equity. That's what happened to those firms. So let's, uh, let's assume something about your idea. Let's say Tim has got this great idea. He has got a group of people that also agree with him in your small circle, um, how would you go tell people about this in today's day and age? How would you get people on board? That's that's not my area of expertise, right? That that's what I would rely on on you for. <laughs> I, I don't know how to reach people, um, and I don't frankly even know if my message or my idea is a good one. But and I don't have the resources to evaluate and analyze the idea and compare it to. But but there is a body of people that that do have those resources. And frankly, um, there is a large percentage of the population that think that that body of people does no wrong, right? We, we're, as a society, we're, we're really a little hesitant to believe in the big corporation, you know, that profit-making machine, that large organization. But we're really happy to vest a lot of confidence in the federal government or state governments or city governments. And in truth, when you look at who's efficient and effective, successful corporations, the larger they are, in many cases, the more efficient and effective they are, the governments, state, local, federal governments, are frankly not terribly efficient and effective. Why are we putting all of our hope in the federal government when they prove not to be as effective as Apple computer? If, if Apple starts making a bad product, they lose, right? I mean, people sell the stock, people go to LG, they go to Huawei, they go you know somewhere else. If the federal government starts generating a bad product, they just issue more debt. You know, they don't need to worry. They've got a an infinite supply of resources. American Red Cross, if they're no good, they don't get donations. You know, they've got to compete in the marketplace. And, and if their service is bad, their ideas are bad, their, their output is bad, they don't get what they need in the way of resources to sustain. It's not true with 
the city of Chicago or the state of Illinois. Well, it's it's funny that when you're talking about the people's belief in this. So, you know, as you know, that I go out and speak a lot to people that have really large concerns about biotech. Um, and one of the things that I've pointed out to rooms full of angry people that really shocks them is, you know, the, the challenge of going out and protesting and saying these GMOs are poison, they're, they're going to kill us all, is that the regulators know that we need agricultural commodities as exports, we need it to feed our population, we, we need these things. So in order to mitigate the risk for themselves, what they do when people are angry is they say, well, we'll just tack on another two years and another 15 studies. And so therefore, in order to get a, uh, a new gene that you've put into corn or soybeans deregulated, now you've gone from it being 10 years of regulatory trials to 13 years. And let's say each one of those years is $10 million. You've just shifted it from $100 million to get it to market to $130 million. Right. Which means there's that many less companies out there that can do it, which means the very companies that you're the most afraid of have just gotten bigger and larger <laughs> and more integrated. So it's and happened it's with the banking. Again. I mean, every bank that was too big to fail is twice as big as they were 10 years ago. Because the cost of being able to regulatory, regulation. Right, right. And, and you know, there, there's a... There's an economic theory that says that those large corporations, even though they rail against regulation, they're really the ones yeah, supplying. Yeah, regulatory capture. Yeah, yeah, they're really the ones supplying all the ideas. So I, I, I'm, um, I, I think that the the results are what people should focus on. So we, you know, we've had this uh, issue in in the United States, and and I agree, um, people should be able to get quality health care because we have quality health care in the United States and it's not fair to me like education right where I can go to a private high school or I can go to the high school that's funded by tax dollars theoretically the objective is to make those as close together as possible but I still have access to the free Wait, education theoretically, what do you mean theoretically it's to make I mean the, the private school has every incentive to make it the best possible sure because they're they can. they're competing right but the uh the public schools, you know, are, are also competing and they're saying, oh, you know, we're just as good as, you know, put the name in whatever the parochial high school or, or uh, private high school. So, so there's this dynamic around, you know, we want the public schools to be as effective as the private schools, but they're not, but, but we want them to be. And I think that same dynamic could work in the healthcare space. The problem is the there's this belief that you can't have this separated system, even though, of course, we do. Some people get better health care than others. If they have more money, they can afford more health care. So this theory started out that we need to create uh, legislation and rules and laws that, that direct, you know, how insurance companies can participate in the United States to offer insurance. And the objective became delivering insurance, not delivering health care. So you end up in a situation where you say, oh, I feel so good today because, you know, 40 million more people have insurance. But the insurance is rotten insurance. It doesn't help them to get more health care. You know, when you look at some of those plans, it's like you're paying for half of the health care costs. Now, half is better than all. But people still can't afford 
quality health care with a bronze policy on the, on the exchange because the bronze policy is no good. It doesn't support what you need it to support. And so I've come up, you know, with, with uh, I'm, you know, looking I mean, at this. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like right now, though, you're, you're um, mincing words. You're saying people are paying for insurance when what they should be paying for is health care. And, and sorry, the, the federal government is providing a mechanism to get insurance when they should be providing for a mechanism to get care. Okay. So how, how would you say this? So then? first, go back and look at the value, the enterprise value of United Healthcare before the federal government said, okay, United Healthcare, you've been bad, you've been terrible, now you've got to abide by our rules. They said, oh, please don't make us do that. Don't throw us in the briar patch. Lo and behold, they're worth three times as much as they were before. So how did that happen? Well, it happened because the federal government said, hey, everybody, you've got to buy their product. If their product was a big screen TV instead of healthcare, you know, Panasonic would be the, you know, wealthy company, wealthier than they were before. It, it's not about getting access. It's not about getting access to um, healthcare. It's about getting access to insurance. I think we ought to, not mandate, but promote uh, an insurance policy that gives people access to health care. So the, the, the concept of a high deductible policy that deals with catastrophic things. So when you say high deductible, you mean you, something happens, you have to pay a certain amount in order to start having your insurance kick in. Before then, right. you're, you're, you're covering the cost up till $10,000, $10,000. That's a good number. So okay. let's say... What would United Healthcare or Aetna or anybody sell a $10,000 deductible policy for as a monthly premium? It would be lower substantially than the $1,500 deductible policy because they're at risk with a much larger population, right? The idea that someone's going to have $1,500 or $600 worth of costs in a year versus $10,000 of costs in a year. There is a number, I don't know exactly what it is, where the insurance companies would say to you, oh, well, if you could get the deductible up to here, you know, we might give the insurance away because, you know, very few people are going to reach that level. They wouldn't. Obviously, there'd be no economic uh, value for that. But the policy premium on a monthly basis would be much lower. So what I have to pay to get that insurance would be lower than what I'm paying today. Now, the next thing you say is, well, Tim, you elite, you know, rich yeah, guy. People don't have $10,000. They, they, they don't even have $2,000. So, again, we petition the federal government. If something happens to me and I've got to pay some of that deductible over the $1,500 that the federal government says today, it's okay for you to pay first by yourself between $1,500 and $10,000, if that's the magic number you can apply to the federal government and we'll reimburse you for that. And it's going to be based on your means. So it'll be a means tested thing, just like the earned income tax credit or aid to dependent families or however we do what we do in terms of redistribution. But use the insurance company to manage that because they're much more efficient and effective than the federal government would be managing the 
you know, the adjudication of claims and, and you know, evaluating whether somebody's cheating or not cheating in, in terms of the health care, people would get the care. And if you went into the hospital and you said, you know what, I, I don't know anything about this. I know I've got this policy where it's a $10,000 and I don't have $10,000. So the hospital, the medical provider would be incentivized to say, don't you worry, Vance, we can figure it out for you because we want that $10,000 that you're entitled to, as much of it as you're entitled to from the federal government. So we're going to create the mechanism that you sit down with somebody and you give us your you know, tax returns or you know, whatever, however they would do it. And they'll say, okay, we got this. We're going to go to the medical healthcare equivalent of the IRS. And we're going to say, we think based on Vance's circumstances, he's entitled to 800 sorry, $8,649.86. Now, we'll go to Vance for the difference between $8,600 and $10,000. We'll take our chances on that. But we're getting everything from the policy above 10. We're getting everything above whatever standard deductible, you know, the geniuses in the federal government say, you know, is the right amount that people should be able to handle on their own. Everything else is taken care of. So that person walks into the hospital just like the Vanderbilts and the Carnegie Mellons and everybody else. They've got a policy that covers them, you know, millions and millions of dollars if they have health care problems. So there is this there isn't so, this what about, difference. So, so, OK, fair enough on all the catastrophic. But I mean, my understanding, my impression is that most of the. Uh, insurance right now is being paid out for people's prescription drugs and for their... Sure, but it's still the same deductible, right? So whether it's catastrophic and it's a $57,000 surgery or whether it's $4,000 a year of insulin, I don't know what insulin costs, thank goodness, but whether it's $4,000, if your responsibility in the bronze policy is to pay the first $2,200, you still have to come up with the first $2,200 before the insurance kicks in. I'm saying the insurance kicks in at 10. Over your $2,200, you petition the federal government for everything up to 10. So it it can be nine instances that add to 10. It can be one instance that adds to 10. It doesn't matter. The insurance company's not responsible until you get to 10. And it's the village that chips in to pay the 10 so that, you know, you only have to come out of pocket what we think is an appropriate amount for you to have to come out of pocket. And whether you borrow that from your parents or your neighbors do a, you know, a fundraiser to you, you know, for you to get the first $2,200, that's the world we live in right now. There is no zero, well, there might be, but for the most part, most people don't have zero deductible health insurance. They got to pay the first X amount. So the policy that's a $10,000 deductible policy can still offer the same wellness plan that the one that's a $2,200 policy offers. So, you know, uh, prenatal care is free. Your annual physical is free. You know, whatever's free now can be free then. It's just the policy doesn't kick in until you've hit 10 grand and they're willing to price that down very aggressively and competitively because they've got actuarial stuff that says, oh, you know, the likelihood of this person reaching $10,000 is very low. So if we collect 108 bucks from that person every month of the year, God bless. That's fine. 
Well, in Tim Hausler's America, there is petitions all the time. <laughs> right. Lots of petitions and uh, um, um, a significantly empowered federal government. So there are petitions, right? Because the bottom X, whatever that X is, needs to help. And I'm all for, as a bleeding heart, whatever, I'm all for, yeah, let's create that safety net. Let's create the help. Let's just do it in a way that allows people to get generationally wealthier, right? Let's not leave people, you know, generation after generation in poverty because of the way that we sustain them. We sustain them in a, in a livelihood that just isn't all that compelling. What do you, what do you say to people? So I would say um, the people in my realm where I'm at uh, have a pretty deep suspicion in the federal government. And would would actually prefer much much more to move to uh, regional governments or mega regions or even even more of like a, a I'm city, good with city that. State. Yeah. Okay. Doesn't bother me. Except I don't want to be in the region that New Jersey's in. I don't want to be in the region that Illinois's in. Those states are bankrupt. I mean, there's just no way for them to come out. And in the way that I evaluate things, and it's funny. So. I spent some time in the municipal finance sector. And you would read the articles about the Chicago Public School System Pension Fund. So the Chicago Public School System Pension Fund has 39 cents for every dollar of obligation. I don't know if that's exactly the right number, but it order of magnitude. And everybody says, well, you know, 39 cents isn't going to cut it. Those, those bills are going to come due. And they say, you know... City of Chicago needs a school system. Push comes to shove, they're going to put the money in. The city of Chicago, for their pension system, has 46 cents of every dollar. And so, you know, you look and you say, well, they don't have a lot of resources to help the school system. They don't even have the resources to help themselves. So you talk to the city of Chicago and they say, ah, you know, push comes to shove, the state of Illinois needs the city of Chicago. State of Illinois is going to step in and, and bail us out. Yeah, and then on up to the federal government. The state of Illinois has 52 cents for every dollar that they need. There is nobody to bail out Illinois. You in, don't think the federal government's going to bail them out? How in the world is, is the federal government going to step in with 49 other you know, state senators and all those other representatives and say, yeah, 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 it's right to take money from Missouri and Indiana and California and Texas and New York and New Jersey and help Illinois. But I, we already do that. I mean, like you already I see. don't think so. Well, the one time that it ever happened was New York and the federal government, you know, sort of said you're on your own. So you think the state of Illinois would go into the position where they would have to declare bankruptcy? City of Detroit. Who bailed them out? Nobody. They just, whoever had money. I don't even they, know what's going on in Detroit. After, after the lead situation you know blew up around them i you know i didn't hear. so detroit um you know ruined itself with pensions because there was a period of time in the 80s when things were going gangbusters and these pension funds returned more than their obligation so they ended up with larger pools of money than they owed people and they would sit around and they would say well you know whose money is this really nobody's money. I mean, you know, we, 
we've got everybody taken care of, as many employees as we have forever, and we got an extra few hundred million dollars left over. Unfathomable now. Yeah, unfathomable now, no question. So the city of Detroit, for three out of the next 10 years, sat down and said, oh, we need to give that guy a better pension. We need to lower his, you know, his uh, years of, of work requirement in order to reach full pension. We need to increase the percentage of his final salary that he gets. It was like a contest to see who could be most generous. And then, you know, the worm turns, stock market has trouble, returns in the pension fund, you know, aren't quite the same. And all of a sudden, instead of a surplus, we've got this terrible deficit. And the, and the pension fund goes to the city and says, well, you know, we've done our best to manage this the best we can. You have to give us more money. And the city says, what are you talking about? We're giving you what we're legally obligated to give you. Yeah, but that's not going to cut it. You need to take more money out of your general fund or raise taxes to give us a bigger contribution every year. And so you end up with this, you know, downward spiral where when you increase property taxes or other taxes in the city of Chicago, people leave the city of Chicago. And so you've got a lower tax base and an increasing demand because the pension obligation continues to grow and grow and grow and the shortfall is bigger and bigger and bigger. So you end up in this horrible mess where, you know, theoretically there's one person left in the city of Chicago and, and living in his uh, $400,000 house, he has to pay $680 million a year in property taxes because there's nobody else to pay them, right? So it, somewhere you tip over and, and you don't know where you tip over because part of what causes the tip over is people just aren't willing to buy your bonds anymore. You can't issue more bonds to throw money in the pension fund. You can't issue more and bonds. And how are the bonds going for Chicago? They're junk. Right, I mean, literally junk. Like, junk what, what are they rated right now? Uh, triple B minus, double B plus, something. I, I don't know. I haven't. Something that I'm two years away from of, that life. Risk on, on oh yeah, it, yeah. Because they may not get the money back. May not get the money back. And what's the rate of return? Just, I mean, be higher, be higher. Seven percent, six percent. When so, so not when Missouri's issuing bonds at two eighty. You know, now we're back to move to St. Louis, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a problem because ultimately the people who are left there are the ones like in Detroit. So when you go to Detroit, there are some really beautiful areas in, in the Detroit metropolitan area. But there are parts of Detroit that look like, you know, they've been abandoned because they've been abandoned. And, and so there's whole neighborhoods that nobody lives there. Because they didn't, they don't have the resources to provide services, and if you can't get services, why why would you live there? So it's happening in a lot of communities, especially where people are you know moving and moving and moving. And the only thing that saves that is the gentrification with wealth, right, of, of improving neighborhoods. So you know you've got Long Island. And, and, you know, boroughs in Manhattan, you know, Manhattan is just expanding, expanding, expanding because people want to be there. And Detroit is going to go through that renaissance. But the poor suckers that lost were the ones that bought the bonds near the end and thought, well, it's okay. You know, I've, 
I've got revenue sources supporting my bond and, and in bankruptcy, and it's not bankruptcy because cities and states can't do that, but in reorganization, somebody decreed, oh, well, we're going to take the revenue sources associated with yours and we're going to you know, put them into the general fund and we're going to only pay you 20 cents on the dollar and only pay you 36 cents on the dollar. That was a rude awakening. People were stunned. Puerto Rico, same sort of thing happening. So, you know, there's. An I don't know how we got on this. Well, so I mean, I, I guess I would just say there's an interesting uh, combination between what you're talking about here and your what you mentioned about Apple and the federal government. Is cities are one of the most amazing things. They're almost like a living organism. And uh, there's a great talk by Jeffrey West um, from the Santa Fe Institute where he talks about cities can do exactly what you talked about. They can. You know, they're born, they grow, they level off, and they die. And companies actually do the same thing in that kind of sigmoidal growth curve. Right. But the difference is, because a city is a physical place and the infrastructure is there, and typically because there are rivers there and places that people want to be and other things going on, that new people come in, inhabit the space, and they, it gets to grow again. So it gets to be reborn like a phoenix, whereas an arbitrary boundary, like state lines or even national boundaries, those are the things that can come and go. Whereas yeah. the cities, no, right. it's, it's almost never does a city go away forever. It's very, very rare. Well, I mean, we're watching Detroit. It'll be very interesting to see if it kind of reemerges like a phoenix or whether it continues to sort of plot along. When, when you talk about that life cycle, is it a long time or is it a short time as a function of how well it's managed, Right. If you manage it badly, it's going to go through that life cycle faster. Whether it's a company, a 501c3 not-for-profit, or municipality, the, the more badly it's managed, the, the shorter the life cycle is going to be. In, in a, an extremely well-managed organization, for-profit, not-for-profit, municipality, the better managed it is, the more sustainable it is, and the longer that life cycle is going to be. So I'm all for fiscal, you know, reasonableness. I'm all for having people managing these things that understand that their principal objective is to be fiscally sound and sustainable. If you end up in a situation where, you know, to get elected, I can promise somebody this and I can promise somebody that, and you mismanage the resources that, you know, you're a steward, you're supposed to be taking care of everybody's resources. If you mismanage that for your own benefit, then the life cycle is going to contract. And we can see it. I mean, we've got perfect examples of this in all, all across the United States where some cities are managed better than other cities and some cities are sustaining better than other cities. And even the cities that people gravitate to that might cause even more problem, right? Because if they're imbalanced, if they're not taxing people enough to pay for the services, the more people they get, the worse it is, not the better. So it needs to be managed well, and we just don't have a mechanism for putting people into municipalities that are best suited to manage it. We do with corporations, and we do with not-for-profits, because if poor management gets in there, the organization is going to fail. And if the organization fails, something's going to have to come along to provide those services, you know, because there's a demand for those services. 
in, in a municipality, as long as you keep electing people that don't manage things well, it's just going to continue to get bad and bad and bad until you end up with Detroit. If, you know, if someone were to say to me, how far away is Chicago from Detroit? I don't know. I, I, not, not a lifetime away, I don't think. Okay, so um, probably to wrap up, I've got, I've got uh, two questions. Okay. One is uh, less personal, um, but you know, kind of gives you a chance to, to talk about something maybe you haven't before. And the other one's a little bit more personal. Which, which one would you want first? Um, I'll take the less personal okay, one Okay, the first. less personal, but I'm going to give you the other one, so you just have to buckle. I may have to leave, though. The, the first <laughs> one is, um, uh, what, you know, what's, the, what's the book that you have read that you think, man, if I could get more people to read that book, they would understand X, Y, Z. You're not going to like my answer. Okay. Atlas Shrugged by Ann Rand. Why would I not like that answer? I don't know. You're a millennial. <laughs> You're a millennial. I don't know. <laughs> I, I was fascinated by that book, and I read it in, um, in the middle of my MBA years, going back and forth from my aunt and uncle's house into the city of Chicago to work at First Chicago Bank. So I, you know, I would be on the train for 30 minutes, and I would read that book, so it was really had a tremendous impact on me because I was doing what I thought, you know, Hank Reardon was doing. You know, I was, <laughs> making I was chain and I, right. I was uh, making a, you know, making a difference and pursuing my uh, ambitions. So that, that's a book that I would encourage everybody to read. You know, everybody that I know that read that book, that had it mean something to them, uh, I think was reading it at a pivotal time for them and, and in terms and, of their age no in terms of just something going on in their lives okay in fact like I, it's it's almost like a fun game that i play if somebody tells me they like that book uh i ask them what was going on in your life when you read it and it, it's almost like a hero's journey that somebody because you don't start that tome and get all the way through right. it without without right. having some you know i was actually uh learning how to work out as an adult and i i actually lost i think you know 25 pounds or something like that while listening to that audiobook really and and having it be just something that was that was there but i've had many friends that that's the same thing and i get all the way done with saying this one time and i'm making the case and my cousin points out you know all of the all of the um heroes are all good and all of the bad people are all bad. <laughs> well, it's like incredible straw men. And I right. was like, yeah, that's a good point. But at well, the time, it that really was... was that was, was Anne Rand's point, right? <laughs> yeah. So the, the, I, I, I think that is probably the book that has had the biggest impact on me. And I would encourage people to read it if they haven't. Okay, so the next question, more personal. And actually, I was, I was talking with a good friend of mine who is going through a major life transition right now. He's trying to figure out what should I do? Should I try and start this startup company? Should I try and join one that I'm doing? And he said something uh, quite profound. Uh, and there's several derivations of this question, but, but I thought this one was kind of interesting. He said, you know, as I've thought about this, I've thought about um, uh, passing on, you know, when I, when I die, uh, who is it that I want to be at my funeral? And what is it that I hope that they say? And so I would actually ask you that question. You're in a you're in a transition period. You're yeah. working with startups. You 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 know um, write, write young people with that write articles in newspapers to say let's meet up and chat. Who do you want at your funeral, and what do you hope that they say? So I'm a new grandfather. I have a, a nine and a half month old grandson, 
right now for me, family is like the most important thing. Um, my son is getting married. He's engaged to a beautiful young woman, a beautiful inside and out. Um, so family for me, I, you know, and, and then I guess next would be whoever's left of my friends that, uh, that could come. That you didn't engage with politically. Right. <laughs> they, <stayed with> <laughs> they are still my friends. <laughs> so, you know, family and friends. I, um, I don't have any ambition for Mike Pence to be at my funeral or, you know, anybody political or uh, anybody that is a celebrity. I, I, I think that happens in life. But at death, I, the most important things kind of rise to the surface. And the most important things are the people you loved and who loved you through the good times and the bad. And so I, I, that would be my answer. My grandson. So, sounds great. And, and, sounds and actually, great. I would I would like my fifteen grandchildren to be okay. at, my, at my funeral, but my two children might not agree that I would have fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems like a great place to leave it off. I'm so glad we did. This. Thank, Thank you. It's fun. I appreciate you. it. I'm going to pack my soapbox up and uh, we'll head have home. you back, and you can talk on it again sometime. Thank you.